Our Old Testament lesson is from Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. This is the book that we just finished uh, going through in our Read Scripture plan. So if you've been following along there, this ought to sound a little familiar. It can be found on page 1159 in your pew Bibles. Isaiah 61, and it is the whole chapter. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Or we ask that you would help us this morning to hear your word. Help us not just to hear the words um, and have them go in one ear and out the other, but help us to hear from you your word for your people. God, that by your word and by your spirit, we would be changed more and more into the people that you've created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus, and even in relationship with each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will, renew, they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so... You will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me in, with garments of salvation And arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seed to grow, seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Turning then to Luke chapter 4, we'll hear a section of Isaiah 61 again. This time in Nazareth in the first century A.D. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. As Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that, uh, that particular story of Jesus in Nazareth, I have not been able to read the same way since going to Israel a few years ago and going to Nazareth, which looks very different than it did back then. It's a much larger city now. But also going and standing on the edge of that cliff. It is a steep sharp drop uh, that goes way, way down. Um, And Nazareth is just built right up near the edge of that cliff. Uh, Seems like a strange place to build something, but anyway. And so you read this story of how they respond to Jesus, and it is not (laughs) welcoming with open arms, but even though here he is, the one who has come to heal them, they don't want any part of it, and they run him off to reject him. Well, this is not the first time that we have seen people respond negatively to this message that's supposed to be good news. And so we've been following that throughout all of the book of Acts. And we have seen how Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in all these different areas, the whole world. And that's what's been happening through the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, what we saw last week, though, was a bit of controversy within the church. So it's not just... How do other people respond, and are they upset about what's supposed to be good news to them? But now we've got some issues internally. And so we looked last week in Acts chapter 15 at what do you do when you have this kind of conflict within the church? How does that get resolved? And we're going to look again at some more of that this week as uh, we see the results of this. Okay, so what do they do at the end of this meeting? That they have. And this is where we are in Acts chapter 15, verses uh, 22 through 35. The, uh, the issue that had come before them was we'd had some people saying that the new Christians who weren't Jewish 
needed to now be circumcised and become fully Jewish if they were going to be Christians and receiving this Jewish Messiah. And there are others saying, no, this is, this is a new thing. It's a new covenant. And it, you don't need to be, Christians don't need to become Jews to receive Jesus, um, but Jews and Gentiles alike need to become a part of the body of Christ, which is kind of a different thing. And so um, that was the debate. So they had met together, they'd uh, talked through everything, and then here's the result of this. Verse 22, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and Paul. Our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from, the sexual, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men went off, or they were sent off, and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So this is the result of this council they had in Jerusalem to settle the issue. And what I want to look at with this particular passage, three things. One is the authority in the church. Two is the decision-making in the church. And three is being together in the church. And um, so with that, the first thing, of course, is authority. I don't know if you caught this in the letter, but the way that they write the letter, they started out by saying the apostles and elders. This is who is writing this letter. It's those who actually have authority in the church that are writing the letter. It's the apostles those who've been sent by Jesus. And it's the elders. It's those who have been in the faith longer and are more mature in their faith. This is who's writing the letter. And then the first thing they say to them after greetings is, we've heard that some went out from us without our authorization. <laughs> in other words, there are people who did not have authority to be saying what they were saying, who just kind of went rogue, and it's caused some problems. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and so they're saying, but we have met together, and we have... Uh, as those who have the authority to speak to this issue, we're going to speak to this issue and settle the matter for you. Now, I know already, I mean, in our society today, the issue of authority is one where everyone is at least a little skeptical of authority, if not downright hostile to the idea of anyone having any authority over anyone else. <laughs> we just don't like that at all. And unfortunately, there are good reasons why we've gotten that way because of the ways that people have misused 
the authority instead of using it properly. And so we do have a general distrust for authority today. That being said, it is unfortunate that that is the case because there are times where it really helps to have someone who is in that position of authority to speak authoritatively on a topic. For example, I'll give you just a very simple example. Say you're at a baseball game, right? The pitcher throws the ball. Everybody on uh, (laughs) fans of one team sees it, and they're like, it's a strike. Absolutely, that's a strike. All the other fans see it, and they say, no, 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 not at all. That was clearly a ball, not a strike. They're not going to agree on this, are they? So what are they going to do? All the eyes are going to look to the umpire, right? (laughs) He's the one who has authority to make the call. It was a ball, it was a strike. And what he says goes, because that's his position. He has that authority. If he were to stand there and just say, I don't know what you guys think. (laughs) We have a problem. And so there is a place for proper authority and for it to be used properly. A very interesting side note on this. I don't know if you watched any of the curling in the Winter Olympics. I don't have referees or umpires. It's the weirdest thing. And I actually saw in one particular match where the two teams had a little disagreement on whether somebody had touched a stone and they knew they touched it, but whether it had gone out of bounds first or not, which make a big difference and they couldn't decide and finally one of the guys one of the team players actually turns to the audience to the crowd and just says was it in or was it out <laughs> and everybody's just like blink blink i don't know what are, you, what are you asking us for but that's kind of the way that that sport is handled is everybody's supposed to be you know we can do this on our own we can get this figured out we don't need any referees or umpires and in that moment it was kind of like i don't know It'd be kind of nice if we did have somebody we could turn to at this point besides just the crowd. So this is what's going on in the church. Is there's got to be somewhere you can look, some kind of authority structure. And so we do have that in the church today, although I do want to caution us that we don't take this too far and think that it's the same as it was with the apostles themselves. But what we do have is the writings of the apostles themselves. And... Uh, And so we can go back to the New Testament. This is where we go. We go back to the Bible and we say, what do we make of this? On this particular topic, what do they say? And we have to go there first as our authority is. The Word of God as the authority, not just, um, I don't know, what do you think? Was it in or out? (laughs) Uh, That's too much of that today. Anyway, uh, so there is authority in the church and the proper authority... uh, being exercised as it's supposed to is what is to bring bring clarity in the church, bring, um, and it's to be a good thing. You'll notice that at the end of this, those with authority have actually spoken authoritatively on the issue, and then how does it get received? It says in verse 31, the people read the letter, and they were glad for its encouraging message. Here they had been kind of stirred up by these, those that had gone rogue. And they're like, I don't even know what to think anymore. And then the apostles and the elders, who, by the way, also identify themselves as your brothers. <laughs> this is the kind of authority that's not sort of a top-down, but it's a more horizontal relationship. It is uh, working together as a part of the same family. But they're the ones who have to make this call. And so uh, they identify themselves as their brothers. They send this letter. They speak clearly on it. And the people say, thank you. (laughs) 
Now we know, and we can move forward, and we can move forward in confidence. Okay, so that's the authority part of this, the authority in the church. Um, Second thing is this decision-making process in the church and how this was done. Because I don't know if you remember, but in Acts chapter 1, there was a decision-making time in the early church where uh, you had um, Judas had died, and so they had 11 apostles, and they said, I think it's supposed to be 12. We need to get another one. What do we do? And so they met together, and what are you going to do? And so they cast lots. You remember this? And they cast lots. And we said at the time, this has been a long time since (laughs) we went through this now, but uh, at the time we said, this is the last time in the Bible you see anybody casting lots, as in Acts chapter 1. Why were they casting lots? Because that was the way that they would be able to hear from God, to know authoritatively what it is that God is saying. And so if God is the one who's controlling all things, then we say, God, tell us what to do here, and then, you know, basically flip a coin or draw straws or pick rocks or whatever it is, and that he will control that to let them know. And we said that this is the last time that this happened. Why? Because it's Acts chapter 1. What happens in Acts chapter 2? <laughs> Pentecost. Pentecost, when God pours out his Holy Spirit on the church, where people, regular, ordinary people, have access to God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit who is now in their lives. And this is a very different thing than having to just kind of draw straws or flip coins to know what God wants. Now it's a whole different thing. And so we don't see them doing that anymore. And yet, as we read through, if we kind of compare Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 15 for the decision-making process, first of all, Acts chapter 15 seems like it'd be a much easier case of, yeah, let's just flip a coin. You know, it's, it's an either-or. It's either we say they have to be circumcised or we don't say they have to be circumcised. That's it. There's two options. Flip a coin. They don't do that because that's not the way that they make decisions anymore. The way that they make decisions now is doing all the same things as before, which was meeting together, praying together, studying the scriptures together, talking about what, it's, uh, what the scripture says, listening to each other, and trying to discern what the Spirit is actually doing. What has the Bible been saying from the beginning that God is doing, and how does what we're experiencing now confirm or go against what we see this saying? And so how do we act now in light of all that? And they're you know, being guided by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that uh, also is happening in this particular case is people have already been going out, and they've been seeing what the Holy Spirit has been doing in the lives of people who are not circumcised. So they're sharing that too. And this is why when you get to uh, the letter that they write, they don't just say, so we flipped a coin, and here's what we think you should do. They don't just say, we thought a lot about it, and here's what we think you should do. What they say is, verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So blah, blah, blah. That's where their decision-making is coming from. That the, what those with authority have done is they have said, we are under the authority, a higher authority. And we are not going to make decisions apart from that. But we're going to try to see what it is that God is doing. We're going to try to be in line with the Holy Spirit in every decision that we make. And that is what their authority is there for. 
That is why it is those who are the apostles and those who are the elders who are the ones who are doing this. They are to be the ones who have a longer relationship through the Spirit, who have this longer relationship with Jesus, who have this longer relationship with the Father through that. And so as they're making decisions, it's decisions that are to be in line with this. Um, and this is also when you get to uh, the, what the requirements are. <laughs> not circumcision. It's not that. But you have those four things. Abstain from food, sacrifice idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. Seems like a weird list. But the whole idea is, no, you are not to be under the old law. No, you are not to have to become Jewish to, uh, to follow Jesus. And yet, life by the Spirit is a new life. And so there will be changes in your life. But it's not about uh, that sign of circumcision or taking on the sign of the old covenant. But it is about walking a new life with the Spirit. And there are places in um, Galatians that talk about this, Romans 6 and 7, all of Romans. Read all of Romans. Uh, <laughs> along this as well. Um, and then there's one other, one other thing. We talk about the authority in the church and the decision-making in the church. But one other thing um, <laughs> that comes through pretty strong in this passage before I get to that, I want to read you one of my kids' favorite stories. I think you'll like it too. It's called the insurance claim. You may have heard it before. It's, it's been around for a while, but it's great. It was like this. A man injured on the job filed an insurance claim. The insurance company requested more information, so the man wrote the insurance company the following letter of explanation. Dear sirs, I am writing in response to your request concerning clarification of the information I supplied in block number 11 on the insurance form. It gets more interesting. Hang with me which asked for the cause of the injury. I answered, trying to do the job alone. I trust that the following explanation will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the date of the injury, I was working alone, laying brick around the top of a three-story building. When I finished the job, I had about 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to put them into a barrel and lower them by a pulley that was fastened to the top of the building. I secured the end of the rope at ground level, went back up to the top of the building, loaded the bricks into the barrel, and pushed it over the side. I then went back down to the ground and untied the rope, holding it securely to ensure the slow descent of the barrel. As you will note, in block number six of the insurance form, I weigh 145 pounds. <laughs> at the shock of being jerked off the ground so swiftly by the 500 pounds of bricks in the barrel, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Between the second and third floors, I met the barrel. This accounts for the bruises and lacerations on my upper body. Fortunately, I retained enough presence of mind to maintain my tight hold on the rope and proceeded rapidly up the side of the building, not stopping until my right hand was jammed in the pulley. This accounts for my broken thumb, see box number four. <laughs> Despite the pain, I continued to hold tightly to the rope, unfortunately, at approximately the same time, the barrel hit the ground, and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the, bar the barrel now weighed about 50 pounds. I again refer you to block number six, where my weight is listed. I began a rapid descent. In the vicinity of the second floor, I met the barrel coming up. 
This explains the injury to my legs and lower body. Slowed only slightly, I continued my descent, landing on the pile of bricks. Fortunately, my back was only sprained. I am sorry to report, however, that at this point, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. I trust that this answers your concern. Please note that I am finished trying to do the job alone. I like that. That is fun. Um, Trying to do the job alone (laughs) is why he says he ended up with all those problems. Um, And here's what I, why I share that today with this particular passage is this particular passage, uh, I think, shows multiple times what you see throughout the Bible. And that is, that we are not called to do the job alone and not in any sense. And I mean, on the one hand, you have, of course, God is with us. We have the, um, the promise that Jesus gives that surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We have the Holy Spirit who has been sent to dwell in us, to be with us through everything. And so we say, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm never alone. And that is really good to know. And no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you are not alone. That is very good to remember. However, a lot of times people try to stop there and say, that's it. That's what it means to be a Christian is to have a relationship with God, the end. And that's not it. And in fact, even when we go back to Jesus sending out the disciples, how does he send them out? Not one at a time. You go over there, you go over there. But it's you go together over there. You go together over there. He sends them out together with each other. And here's what we see with this uh, council is you've got Paul. And a lot of times, maybe, maybe this is how it is for you. For me, thinking about Abraham all the time, I always imagine like Abraham and Sarah all by themselves out in the middle of the wilderness kind of thing. And then it says that, you know, Lot was captured. And so Abraham got the 318 trained men born in his household. And you're like, wait, whoa, what? <laughs> That's a lot bigger tent than I was imagining. <laughs> There's more people going on. But the same thing, I think, happens with Paul. As we think of the Apostle Paul as sort of this lone figure who just goes out and does all these amazing things, and it's just sort of Paul and Jesus together, you know, that way. Uh, but it's not. All the way through, there's Paul with others. So here we have this uh, conflict in the church, and Paul and Barnabas come from Antioch, and they come to Jerusalem, and they meet with the whole church. And so it says um, in verse 22, the way that this whole thing was uh, started this morning. It says, then the apostles and elders, this is after uh, everything's been heard, everything's, everybody's been listened to, James makes a proposal, here's what we ought to do. And it says, then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided. This is how it's going to be. And it's the whole church deciding together. And then they chose Paul and Barnabas and also Judas and Silas. And so we have these four people going together. And so they've got a letter. They can just send the letter. Take messenger, take the letter. No, we're going to send people to take the letter and actually bring the message. Not just the letter, but the whole full story. And so they send these four guys. And why are there four guys there? So that they can all confirm this is what the whole church is doing. This is the uh, way that we work together. This is what we see the Holy Spirit doing in the lives of believers. But then two of them can go back home. And two of them can stay because it's still... Uh, something that they're doing together. And so 
all the way through, it's this together, together, together. Now, I will say this. Next week, we're going to see a time where um, there's a split. We'll talk about that next week. But for right now, I want to say that is the, uh, the exception, not the rule. What we see over and over again throughout Scripture is people being called together. Um, I've quoted this before, but there was a um, church history book that talked about uh, people who wanted to separate themselves from all the sin of the world, and so they'd go and live in the desert, and they actually ended up having to start monasteries because they were living on their own, and they realized you can't be a Christian on your own. Because there are too many things that Jesus said to do in relationship with other people. And they said, he who lives alone has no one to serve. So how do you serve someone if there's no one else there? And so this is why we're constantly being called not only in relationship with God, but also in relationship with each other. And this is the same kind of thing that we see with Jesus. You say, now wait a second. That's not true. Jesus was always alone. (laughs) No, he wasn't. Jesus had a very unique mission. And so in that sense, there was a way in which no one else could join with him that way. And yet, he calls 12 people who are with him pretty much all the time. And even among those 12, he calls three that are really close to him. And even at times when he goes off by himself, what's he doing? He's praying. He's praying, and he's enjoying the fellowship and the communion that he has had with the Father and the Spirit from before time began. Never alone. Except once. Right? There's one time where Jesus is alone. This is when he's on the cross. When he's on the cross and all his disciples that had been with him for three years run away. It's on the cross when the Father turns away and Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the one time Jesus is alone. And why was he alone then? So we don't have to be. He was alone then so that we won't ever be alone. And it was, the, it was that that made it possible, that opened the way for us to be with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always. But more than that, to have a right relationship restored between us and God and also to have our relationships restored between each other. This is why we see over and over again the church, not just individual Christians throughout the New Testament, but the church together, the Christians called together, working together, serving together, and going out on a mission together, spreading the good news together. There's this togetherness that just flows all the way through the New Testament. Now, today, you probably know, I mean, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here because Y'all are the ones who are here this morning. <laughs> you come here. There are plenty of people who don't because it's just, you know, me and God. That's it. That's the important part. And I don't need anybody else. We have this individualist um, attitude today, this independence uh, that runs strong, especially with Americans. <laughs> I, can, I got this on my own. But as we read through the New Testament, 
We're called to more than that. And so if you know people who are uh, living that way and say, ah, that's good enough, I hope this gives you some, <laughs> some good news to share with them about how, yes, it is great that God has, that Jesus has made us, brought us into fellowship and communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's more than that. It's also with each other. It's hard, but it's worth it, and it's good. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.